Well, hello again, first service. Still good to go? Everybody good? Awesome. Man, I am so pumped to be here. And if I wasn't already excited to be here this morning, sitting through worship this morning has got me that way. Am I right? How good are they? Yeah, I mean, man, I was thinking this morning... I'm not going to preach yet. Hang on. Okay. I was thinking this morning, we were sitting back there in in our pre-production, and we were reading through Scripture, and I was enjoying getting to be with that team, and I was like, we do not know how blessed we are to be in a church where the team that is up here leading worship each week is in the back, pouring over Scripture before they come out here to lead in Scripture. That is a very uncommon thing, believe it or not. And so the fact that these guys dedicate, volunteers dedicate themselves to that before they come and eat this room each week is just beautiful. It makes my job very easy because it's easy for me to be excited about Scripture and talking about it when they're up here singing, knowing Scripture, honestly, better than I do. So if you see those guys out there in the lobby, make sure you thank them because they work very, very hard and uh, they love you all. They do what they do because they love you all very much. So, all right, ready to go? Everybody good? Man, I'm stoked to be here because last week Ben started a new series called Canceling Culture. And side note, this is going to be a a bit of a dialogue this morning, okay? I'm not going to be doing as much teaching as we're going to be kind of talking back and forth, okay? So whenever I say something and you agree with it, you can nod or wave at me. We've got some people in the back who wave at me and that's great, okay? We're going to dialogue and we'll commit to that. And hey, if you get up and leave, I'll choose to believe that you were sick and it wasn't that I said something that offended you, okay? (laughs) Going in this morning and, and, and digging into the series that Ben started last week, our dialogue is going to kind of be predicated upon a question that Ben brought up. And it's a good question. It's the question that this whole series is based on. It's the question that he asked last week, and it's this. In light of all that God has done for us, how then should we live? For my note takers, that is going to be something that we say at the beginning of each of these Sundays that we are in canceling culture. And it's, it's a great question. You know, Ben's a smart guy who says smart things, sometimes in a little too lengthy of a manner, but that's okay. And I was sitting here thinking last week, like, this question kind of puts me on edge a little bit because I, I know this. Growing, growing up in the church, I understand that there is a give and take to my relationship with Jesus. Much more give and much more take on my side. But in light of all that God has done for us, how should we live is a great question to ask. And so Ben kind of got this rolling by nodding to the fact that oftentimes it isn't necessarily our relationship with God that makes this a hard question to answer. Most of the time, it is those external inputs that get plugged into our relationship with God that make this a much harder question for us to answer on a personal basis. The reality of the situation is, if I sit in a room and eat saltine crackers for my whole life and just spend time with God, it's going to be pretty easy to answer this question. But there's a lot going on in the world around us, and he has called us to much more than being monks in a monastery. Thank God. I'm not ready for that. So this morning, we are jumping into this idea of answering this question. And following what Ben said, I realized, because he was talking a lot about anger and the way that we interact with anger as Christians, I realized that probably our posture towards other people, the way that we approach other people, is a great way to predict how we approach Christ, or really just our our closeness to Jesus, right? The way that we interact with other people is a great predictor of how close we actually are to Jesus. And so when that anger kicks up, like we talked about last week, 
it's, it's, it's a proof that maybe I'm not exactly where I think I am. Now, the logic for this claim is definitely there. But like I said, I left last week with a little bit of an uneasy feeling, okay? I left last week with a little bit of an uneasy feeling, and it's not just because I'm an angry individual, I hope. But I was thinking, there's, there's something baked into this idea. The way that I treat other people, the way that I interact with other people, can be a good predictor for how close I actually am to Jesus. And I got home, and I sat on the couch, and I was scrolling through whichever feed it was at the time, and maybe I was rolling through YouTube, and yeah, there's a lot of anger out there. But I was thinking about how there is a sort of misconception within Christianity right now. And it's a misconception that, I hate to say it, I think that sometimes I've bought into. You know, most of the time I like to think that I've evolved past my past a lot of times. I think that I'm pretty far removed from a lot of those denominational things that I had picked up in the past in my church home. But after thinking a lot about anger last week, I realized that there is a misconception that oftentimes in the past I have bought into. And it is the misconception that to be a good follower of Christ, we must make enemies. Have you ever heard that? I don't know that they said that out loud at my church. I don't know that anyone sat me down in a Sunday school class and was like, hey, Austin, to be a good follower of Christ, you have to make enemies. But somewhere along the line, it was definitely communicated to me. And whether it was as innocent as a misreading or as malicious as a misinterpretation, I think I know where it came from. If you look in John 17, we see Jesus praying over his disciples. I'm going to go ahead and hop into the Bible today. Is that okay? Good, okay. So in John 17, we see Jesus praying over his disciples. And I kind of get where people got this idea. Follow with me. Pick up in verse 16. It says this, hey God, my disciples, they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I want you to sanctify them by the truth. We know that your word is truth. Side note, we're going to be looking at the word a lot this morning. It's going to be a lot of passages you're familiar with, and it's because the truth is important. But here's where it is. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Let's leave that up there for just a second, Jack. Notice when he's talking about the world. They are not of the world. I have sent them into the world. We're going to be here for the majority of the morning. I don't know if there are any other like 90s babies out there, right? Any 90s babies, that's okay, right? We had pop punk and George W. It was great. But something else that we have were these, and I remember them distinctly, these Lifeway t-shirts with these little extraterrestrial beings on them, you know, and it said, not of this world. <laughs> and we were like, we wore it around church camp or whatever it is that we did. There is a misconception that the beginning of this verse is the most important part of this. And I think that a lot of times this comes out in this, in this way that is, hey, as a Christian, you are going to make enemies. It's bad news. It's okay. As a Christian, you're going to make enemies. And hey, I'm not going to disagree with that. The reality of the fact is that our gospel that we believe in, we're, we're going to fall under some hostile fire from time to time because it is radical. 
But just because eventually we may have enemies does not mean that we need to go out of our way to make enemies. In fact, if we look at this, that actually seems very counter to what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that we should necessarily be so proud of the not of this world. Yes, we should be proud of it, but not to the fact that it is detrimental to the fact that Jesus has sent us into the world. And if you look at current churches, I would bet that most of them are much more calculated on communicating how they are not of the world than why they are still in the world. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this, but here at Vertical, we, we don't want to go that far into that this morning. If you want to talk to me about a lobby, I'd love to, okay? Let's knock on some mega churches. But here at Vertical, this is, this is a part of church culture that we are not really interested in taking part in. I'm not interested in working in a church where we take part in this. And it's for that reason that we continually put up these four words. You'll see them in services throughout the year. You'll see them on signage. Generous, unpredictable, real, inclusive, all of these things. There's a reason that we believe that we want to tell you what we are about, what Jesus is about, instead of the things that we are vehemently against. Again, going into this morning, we need to understand that it's not the misconception we are supposed to make enemies. In fact, we are not out to make enemies. We are out to make disciples. But how do we go about that as followers of Christ? That's what I'm interested in this morning. Because most of us here this morning would say, yeah, Jesus didn't say go make enemies. He said go make disciples. Cool, see you next Sunday, Austin. But I want to get into the nitty gritty of what that looks like here at Vertical going forward from August 2022. Because I believe, and I can feel it in the lobby when I'm talking to you or at coffees in a booth somewhere, that we're at a turning point as a church. We are at a turning point, even as a society. And now we have the responsibility of whether we are going to take what Jesus says here about making disciples or, or this prayer that he gives up for us in John 17, whether or not we are going to take that seriously. And how do we do that? This morning, we're going to dig into that with the remainder of our time. Cool? Everybody good? Having the ability to voice what you are for rather than what you are against is not something that we, even as a country, have been able to put in our trophy case yet, okay? But there are a few outliers here. And this morning, I want to pay attention to a story where we see this. We're going to see this in the Bible by, by observing Jesus. But recently, I've been reading a story that has really communicated this well to me. And it came from an unexpected place, right? I'm a 28-year-old guy. There's no reason for me to be reading about the 1960s. But here we find ourselves. Lately, I've been kind of obsessed with the 1960s and reading about the years particularly leading up to the 1968 Olympics. Two people in particular have really caught my attention is because I realized that I didn't actually know that much about them, even though I was very familiar with one day in their lives. These two people were named Tommy Smith and John Carlos. You'll probably recognize them from this picture on the screen. Now, growing up, this is a picture that I had seen. Funny enough, I didn't even really know what it was. I remember the first time I saw this picture was when I was watching Remember the Titans that is still a top five movie of all time. But I didn't really know what was going on here. And, and Ben and I both have been talking about this a lot lately. And, you know, whenever I asked about this at one point in time, it was said like, this, yeah, it was when the Black Panthers were a big deal and all of that. 
Well, lately, I've been reading a lot about the 1968 Olympics and the things that were leading up to that. And as always, my interest was kind of sparked by one of my favorite authors who has really been digging into this himself. You may be familiar with the author Malcolm Gladwell. He also has a podcast called Revisionist History that I love. And he's actually just put out a new podcast called The Legacy of Speed. Now, it's not the only thing that you should read on the 1960s Olympics, but it is a great place to start. And in this podcast, he starts to outline this crazy set of circumstances that took a small commuter school in California and turned them into a track and field paradise where they had multiple, multiple, multiple world record-setting athletes. And the majority of them ended up taking part in the 1968 Olympics. But the year leading up to that in 1967 almost changed every bit of that. For those of you that are older than me or more well-read than me, you'll know that the summer in 1967 is often referred to as the long, hot summer. You see, up until this point, the civil rights movement had been going on mostly through peaceful protests by strategists like Martin Luther King Jr., and they had their marches, and, and it was a big deal, and it had mostly been peaceful up until this point. But in the summer of 1967, something snapped. And the country kind of caught on fire. It's the closest that we have ever been to civil unrest between communities. You may be familiar with pictures of the Walls neighborhood in Los Angeles. Or if you go to Detroit or Newark, if you drive down to Detroit downtown right now, you can still see damage from the fires that took place in the summer. And all of this was bubbling up, leading into the year, into the 1968 Olympics. And these athletes, these African-American athletes, had a choice of what they were going to do because of this. It had become very clear to them, not just from the past year, but specifically from the leader of the Olympic Committee in the United States, that they had a decision to make. Just for backstory, if you're reading this, the leader of the Olympic Committee at the time was a man named Avery Brundage, who was vehemently racist and misogynist. And they had a choice to make. It became very popular to talk about whether or not they were actually going to go compete in these 1968 Olympics. Most of the people there had decided that they were probably going to boycott it. Now, I know this is sort of a long way to get to the point this morning, but I believe by looking at this story, and we're going to look at it further and parallel it with what Jesus tells us here, I believe that their decision is very pertinent to the distinction that we need to make as Christ followers when we are trying to differentiate between a life in fear of the world and a life of courage in the world, okay? Because what we see out of these two young men John Carlos and Tommy Smith, and what we have been called to do in Jesus is make a decision that is very, very similar. When the world appears to be hostile to you and you feel like your only option is to make enemies, in reality, we have three enemies, or sorry, three choices, and that's what we're going to look at today. The first option that we have the choice in is to wait. Whenever we feel like the world is hostile, in our case, to what we believe, in their case, to who they are, the first option that you have is to wait. Any loyalist in the room? I appreciate you guys because I'm, I'm really bad about just jumping ship on things. 
But the first option that we have is to wait, choosing to accept whatever happens without active response. For those black Olympians in the 1968, this would have mean continuing with the status quo, continuing to set world record after world record, all the while being in a system led by a man who didn't believe that they really should exist. They would say that this wouldn't actually be an option for them. For you and I as Christ followers, this is will not only be of little benefit just to wait in the world and hope that Jesus comes back eventually, right? We hear a lot of that. But looking in Matthew, we see what Jesus tells us instead of just waiting. He says this, You, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Wait is the least likely option here, but I do want to make the point, particularly for the people who are going to be taking notes about this, we cannot make the mistake as Christians of rebranding the path of peace that we believe in into the path of passivity. We have never been called as Christians just to simply be passive in the world where we live, and actually we've been called to make an impact that we see here in Matthew 28. Action is not the question. The question is, what is the action? So our next option after wait is this. Our second option is to exit. And man, exiting is probably the most tempting option out of all of them. You see, in those Olympic games, exiting seemed like the big move. It seemed like the big play. People notice when there's a boycott. People notice when you don't show up. If I said something up on the stage this morning that you didn't like, I guarantee we would notice if a half of you weren't here next week. Especially whoever's in charge of giving, I'm sorry. Exiting is something that could work. And can we all just admit that there there is something that comes over us when we don't like something? It's like, well, I'll just pull out of that. But we see in these 1968 Olympics that some people actually went through with the boycott. Even though they didn't have the numbers to do that, some people decided, I'm not going to engage in these Olympic Games, even though I'm a world-class athlete, because I don't like what it communicates. And I can respect that. One of the athletes that I read about this week, probably the most famous of these athletes that didn't end up going to the Games, was a man named Louis Alcindor. You might know him better as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And at the time, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was not only an Olympic athlete, but he was on an undefeated UCLA team. He was a world-class talent. And he decided not to go to the Olympic Games because he wanted to boycott it. He chose exit. I don't want to engage in that kind of behavior. And I can completely understand that. But I also can't help but wonder, while I respect that decision, if he had been one of the men standing on a podium at seven foot two, towering over even everyone else on top of this podium, I think I probably would have remembered his picture on the podium. To be honest, until I started researching this, I didn't even know that he was supposed to be at the Olympic Games. Exiting, while it seems like the most beneficial thing in the moment sometimes, it doesn't necessarily have a long-lasting effect. We see this oftentimes in the church, Actually, exiting out of the world, exiting out of fear of the world, is really just disobedience to God. We see this in Matthew chapter 5. 
He says this, and I love this because we turn it into a children's rhyme, right? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. I was reading that this week. I was actually reading it one morning this week, and I was thinking, man, how ironic, ironic it is that we teach that to children in a song. Because the reality is, a lot of times we really mess this up with our kids. Now, I don't have children, and I don't make a habit of telling people how to parent, particularly from stage. But I have been a student pastor for long enough to know that I oftentimes meet parents, the most well-meaning people in the world, who genuinely want a beautiful life for their kids, for them to learn and to know God, to learn to love God. But oftentimes, what we end up doing in doing that is we convince them that anything of the world will taint them. So it's not worth it to be in the world. We make that choice to, to exit our kids out of the situation. Man, I've spent enough time with students, even in this room and at Germantown High School and all of this, to know that a lot of our kids are giants. They're superstars. They have a future, and God is very intent on using them for the future of the church. And if we convince them to be afraid to be in the world too early, we convince them to exit out of the situation too early, they may not have the impact that we actually want for them to have. You know, we, we look at this and we see that waiting, just passively living in the culture and hoping that Jesus comes back one day soon, that's not the option. That's not what we've been called to do. We haven't been called to act or to, to exit in that way. We've actually been called to act. And that's what we, we see here in the scripture as well. If we're going to tell the story of Jesus, right, then we, we need to get to the most basic place. And sometimes we're afraid to go to basic verses because, you know, it, it seems a little too Sunday school for us. But if Jesus can use it, I'm going to use it, okay? So in John chapter 3, we see Jesus having this interaction with a man named Nicodemus. And he breaks it down just as simply as he can. It's probably, I mean, you could probably quote this verse in your sleep. In John 3, it says this, Hey, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you catch that? Do you see what God does with his son in this same interaction? This same place that we've been called into. And when Jesus arrived here on this cosmic rescue mission to come save you and I, he took the most intentional action to be in the world. So that you could see the, the difference between who he was and the culture around him. And for Jesus, this looked like action in the streets. It looked like healing homeless people. It looked like praying with prostitutes. It looked like dining with those who didn't deserve to be in his presence. But for you and I, this looks like Friday night football games. It looks like men in driveways or at Barley's doing life together, trying to get this thing better. It looks like women on sofas until midnight just because you need somebody. 
It looks like Hope for a Weekend. It looks like PTO. It looks like breakfast in a booth. Pick your booth. But for us, acting is this right here in Madison, Mississippi. And it's interesting, when we put it in those terms, it becomes much more personal. When we make it about the people that we see each day at work, or maybe even in the lobby, we start to think about this a little bit differently. Well, I don't want to just wait for that person's life to hit the rocks until they think they need Jesus. I don't want to just exit out of that situation and abandon these people that I've grew up with or live with. No, we've been called to act and interact with one another the betterment of where we are. Action for Tommy Smith and John Carlos in 1968 looked like standing on a podium with their fists raised. And it was quiet. But it was effective. But there's, there's a note to be made in that, and we'll kind of turn the corner on application. None of that really matters if the two of them are not two of the fastest men in the entire world. That their statement doesn't really matter as much if they don't actually get on the podium. And we've even seen this as of late. It doesn't really matter your celebrity status. If you're on the sideline, it doesn't matter what your cause is. Nobody is going to listen to you. And so for you and I, what this means is once we have chosen that we're not going to wait, we're not going to exit, we're actually going to be a church that acts. What this means is that for us to be world-changing we actually have to be world-class at what we're doing. For us to be world-changing the way that God has called us to be here in Madison, we have to be so good at following through on what he has called us to do that people cannot just dismiss us as somebody over there on the sidelines. We have not, called to be, we have not been called to be on the sidelines. Again, Making enemies isn't the goal. We're here to make disciples. That is the game that we're in. So over the, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue talking about this, and Ben will be back next week to talk about what action looks like. But just so I don't leave you with nothing this morning, I want to just kind of speak from where I've been reading really lately, okay? Because I think that this plays well into this. How do we become world-changing, how do we become world-class at what we have been called into? What are the descriptors for that? Well, it's laid out really clearly in another very familiar passage that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and they have all these problems going on, and he's telling them, like, look, let's just make this very simple. If you're going to make an impact, you're going to need to partake in three things, Okay. We're going to need to partake in faith, we're going to need to partake in hope, and we're going to need to partake in love. And I love the description of that as you continue to read. That's your homework for the weekend. Go read 1 Corinthians 13 because it can be life-changing, and it has been for me. It's not just something that we read at weddings. It's for people who are here to actually make disciples. Faith is something that we practice. It's a principle that we practice every day. The man or woman who has faith is not loud and bolsterous. They're sturdy and they're subtle and they're confident. The person who possesses faith, they don't actually need to engage in that fight, be it physically or digitally, because they are very aware that victory is assured even before the start, right? 
If we have faith in what we actually believe, then we don't have to engage in that fight because we already know victory is his. They're able to voice their past experiences and show relevance to the gospel without resorting to hatred or having to go back into a denomination or a political party to prove their point. We don't need that. We've got something greater. The person of faith has a voice that people listen to and they don't even ever have to shout. So let me ask you, not how are you living out your faith, but how are you enacting faith in your life regularly? Would you consider yourself a person of faith to the point that right now I can just live out my relationship with Christ because I know that there's victory in the end. I don't mind staying in this fight and acting because I already know what's going to happen in the end of this. The second part of this is hope, and hope is pertinent to every possible scenario. In fact, there wouldn't even really be a reason to act in the first place if we weren't so desperately needing hope right now. And heads up, we live in a world that will continually need hope as long as we are here. That's actually why we're here. So the person who possesses the source of hope that doesn't, you know, fade away they don't need to enter this arena angry at those who actually need the hope. So often we see Christians go into these different arenas where they feel like they have to be angry at people because they just don't get it. We cannot be angry at people who haven't yet received the hope that we have. Let me ask you, do you feel like you dispense hope on a regular basis? And if not, do you think that you have hope to spare? When I find myself in a really hopeless place, typically that says that I have not spent that much time with somebody who is giving me hope. But as followers of Christ, we should never be in a place where we lack hope. We should be the people who are engaging in that so much that we have so much to spare and to give to those around us. And lastly, we come across love. Paul said that this was the greatest of these and it's easy topic to think about, but love is actually a really hard practice to, to put in. And we could talk about love for forever, and, and honestly, we will as we get further into this series. But I've often thought about the people who are very, very doom and gloom, but they claim to be followers of Christ. The people that actually probably don't have that hope that we were just talking about. And I get why those people are afraid. Because there is a sincere void of love around us right now. But whenever we look at the gospel, whenever we look at the Bible, I would argue, maybe this is too much hope at my disposal, that if there's a general lack of love around us in the world, doesn't that actually make our job that much easier? Wouldn't we contrast the culture that much more if we were actually engaging in love the way that we knew we were supposed to? I'll never forget the first time that I came to Vertical Church and I was talking with a guy out in the lobby and I didn't even really know him. And I asked him, I was just getting to know him, I was about to take the job here, and he was telling me about his hangar group, which is part of a men's community that we're engaged in. And he was telling me how much he genuinely loved those men because they had been in a group together and it had actually changed his life. 
And it was just very easy to see that there were things going on in this church that were so counter to the culture outside of these four walls. And it had everything in the world to do with our experiencing enough love from the gospel of Jesus Christ that we could pour that on to other people. That is something that I want for us going forward as a church. That's something that we should never lose sight of. That's something that should never leave our DNA. Because the reality of it is, if we're out to make disciples, not enemies, the fact that there is less love around us makes our job much easier. We can contrast it that much more. Guys, I'm excited to see where Ben takes the rest of the series. Um, and I'm excited to see what comes out of the next few months following this series as we continue to talk about discipleship in this way. I hope that you'll continue to engage in that with us as we go. Let me pray for you. God, it's long been our prayer for Vertical that we would not look like other people, that we would not look like the culture around us, that we would not look like a dying church culture, that we wouldn't look like people who are void of hope and love and faith, God. I pray that we would look at this inspirational story that we've talked about this morning and, and pair it with the clear instruction of your word to take on this challenge of knowing that for us to actually change the world like you commissioned us to in Matthew chapter 28, we are going to have to fully invest in these gifts that you have given us. God, whether that's in groups, whether that's in discipleship, whether that's just in meeting one another weekly for a lunch or a breakfast, God, that we would sharpen these skills and begin to engage with the people around us in the way that you've commanded us to here, God. God, give us courage when we want to exit. God, help us to use our voice whenever we feel like we need to just wait and see what happens. And God, when we've decided that it's time to act, God, because we know that's what you've called us to do, help us to do that lovingly. Not out of fear, but lovingly. Because we have enough to spare because of your sending your son here for us. You're so good to us, God. We pray ahead of this week. We love you and praise you. Amen. Amen. See you next week, guys. Have a great one.